Okay, we've been in a series in Revelation, and uh, we're going to read today's passage, okay? So uh, we're in Revelation 2, we're in verses 12 to 17. If you've got a Bible on you, that'd be great. If not, the words will appear behind me, and you should get them uh, online now if you're tuning in. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, and this is God's Word. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and they committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray just as we start today. Jesus, to you, the giver of life, the faithful one, the merciful one. The one who went to the cross, the one who rose from the dead, the one who sent his spirit, the one who wrote through John, who spoke to these churches so many years ago is the one who is with us today. Jesus, by your spirit, visit us now. Speak to our hearts where we are. Speak to our heads where they are. Move in our lives, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we say and we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so it's week four in the Revelation series. If you've been following us either in person here or online or whatever, we're in week four now, all right, uh, looking at the future church uh, through the words of Jesus and the writing of John, okay? And we've been tracking through, uh, we've done two churches in kind of an introductory week, so it's kind of the third church this week, all right? And this week we're in Pergamum. And a number of years ago, I spent some time on a short-term mission trip uh, in Kenya, and it was incredible, right? It was one of those, it was one of the more wonderful experiences of my life. The people were incredible. The country is absolutely stunning. And what God was doing through the work that we were supporting while we were there was incredible, right? And so as part of the trip, I get, we get invited to this church. We're obviously there from a kind of a Presbyterian church background. So we go to see this kind of Presbyterian church that's been planted in the middle of this very rural area, right? And so, you know, you're kind of swanned in as the short-term mission trip, you know, people that are there to support. And you have this, you know, pride of place at the front and all of that. And it starts, right? The church service starts. Or it starts as I kind of thought it was starting. And it starts with just like somebody starts singing, 
And then it erupts into like song and melody and dance and color and harmony. And there's like, there's no instruments, but somehow everyone's in tune. And there's, there's no like drums or anything, but it's just rhythm with clapping and hitting things with their hands and their feet. It was utterly incredible, right? And yet in that moment, at the same time, as I watch people sing like that and dance like that and think right now, as a boy very much from Northern Ireland, right, I, can't, I definitely can't sing like that. And I definitely can't dance like that, right? I've never felt less African in my whole life, right, in that moment, okay? Uh, and it was incredible, right, just pouring out love and worship for Jesus. Incredible. And it was typically African, right? There was like no start time. We were already like 30 minutes later than they said they were going to start. There was nobody just announced. It just just kind of started. And now we're in this service. And then the minister arrives. And it's like 35 degrees. And he's wearing a shirt and tie, right? And nobody else is wearing a shirt and tie, just for reference, so you know, right? So he arrives. He's wearing a shirt and tie. And he sits in this huge wooden chair, right? The kind that's probably out in that vestibule right now, right? He sits in this massive chair. And now he says, now then, let us sing. And I'm like, what's been happening this whole time, right? If that's not the singing, then how good is the singing going to be? And then this like dodgy old Casio keyboard gets kind of rolled out. And this person that can't really play begins to play. And then what happens next is I hear the worst rendition of Then Sings My Soul that I have ever heard in my life, right? I love that song, right? It's one of my favorite songs, but it was terrible, right? It It just didn't fit. It was so out of place, so out of context, so formal and rigid and wordy and just all the things that just felt like compared to what we just felt and we just heard and we just experienced. Like, what is this? How does this fit here? And I say that today because the very first words that Jesus says to the church in Pergamum are these. These are the words of him who is the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. And this is this repeat feature, okay, of Jesus speaking to the churches in Revelation. I know, I know, I know. He says it again and again and again. He wants them to know they are known. And as we kind of look at them, if Ephesus was, I know your work, Smyrna was, I know the pressure that you live in, then Pergamum is, I know where you live. And that's significant, right? Because the church is always living in a sense of place, right? The church is lived in a sense of place. It's always about a people incarnated to the way of Jesus in a place and a time, right? It it, it has to be somewhere at some time, right? On one level, the challenge is to be present, isn't it, right? Like the church isn't to be abstract, okay? It's to be present. Oliver Wendell Holmes is widely credited with saying some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good, right? Like the church, we're not, we're not meant to be a people of platitudes and, and kind of a perception that we're somehow just floating above, living in the real world, facing things that real people face, right? That's not who we're called to be. We're not a, we're not a people of platitudes, are we? We're called to be present, and that's the first challenge. And then the second challenge is the challenge to be present here, right? The challenge is to be present here. Like, I cannot imagine myself leading a rural church, right? No matter how much I might think that maybe that is in my life at some point in my life, like, I just can't. I mean, they're going to take one look at me, right? 
And they're going to be like, what does this fella know about tractors and vehicles and things? Like, like, that's what they're going to say, right? I know more about coffee beans than I know about tools, right? They're going to be like, look at the state of this guy. He can't lead us, right? And apart from that, I mean, we have to also consider those of you that have been with us for a while will know that in my short ministry, I have managed to offend most of Northern Ireland's provincial towns, right? I mean, Dungannon's been in the hit list a couple of times. I'm sorry, Dungannon. Oma, Larne, you know, we've hit, sorry, Helen, I know you're from, I know Oma has a special place in your heart, right? I've offended them all. So I'm going to show up there and they're going to, oh, this guy, this guy, right? We can't, I couldn't live, I could, just couldn't do it, right? They are wick though, right? Northern Ireland's provincial towns. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, jokes, jokes. It'd be a disaster though, right? It'd be a disaster. Why? Because it's just, it's not in me. It's not in me. Those places aren't in me. And that's just it, right, for the church. Because for the church anywhere, for us followers of Jesus, there is this sense of how we are in our world and the world is in us too. How we're in our world and the world is in us. The church is always called, it always exists, incarnated in a place and in a time. And so the question is always, what's in us, right? And so as we look at Pergamum, what was in their world? Well, we find out pretty much straight away, because right after Jesus says, I know where you live, he follows it up with where Satan has his throne. So I know where you live, right? And what's one of the features of the place that you live? It's the place where Satan has his throne. And throughout the book of Revelation, okay, and it's relevant because it's mentioned explicitly today quite a few times, okay, Satan is a player in the narrative. Satan is a major player in the narrative of Revelation. There's no way to hide from that fact, right? That throughout the book of Revelation, Satan is not some fictional character just based in imagery, right? He's not just a fiction. He's real. He's intelligent. He's active in their world and ours, and his intent is to ruin not just us, but human flourishing. He's real. And we've got to face it, right? We've got to face it. We can't ignore the fact that Satan is a big player in this narrative. And as this is the narrative of the future church, we've got to anticipate that Satan is a big player in our world and in our lives as well. You know, when we kicked off this series in Revelation, in many ways, I had absolutely no idea that the book was going to speak and hit us as hard as it has. You know, I think when you kick off Revelation, you sort of think at the start, well, at least it's going to be interesting, right? Like one way or another, it's not going to be dull. But it hasn't been like that, has it? Those of you that have been here over the last number of weeks, right? The book of Revelation has been speaking heavily on us. Like I'm in the room too, and I feel us wrestling these past weeks with life and death, suffering, pain, the tension of living with the weight of the world and the call of the kingdom on all of our lives. And one of the things we find out, okay, when you come to read Revelation is that though it's so imagery heavy, right? And the images are always kind of out there. You're always going, well, what on earth does this mean? And once you begin to read and think a bit about it, right, though the language is pretty out there, the real life application is as real as it gets. And so as Revelation speaks about the devil, Jesus, and remember, it's Jesus who's speaking to us through John's writing, right? He wants us to understand and believe that the devil is as real as all of the rest of the things that he's speaking about. As the writer for The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty wrote, I can't get on board with God. God never talks. But the devil, the devil keeps advertising 
the devil does a lot of commercials. That might be a struggle for you, right? As you've, as you've been maybe plodding along with us in this series, you're like, I can entertain the stuff about God, but like the devil is real. Are you, like, are you joking me? It's just greed, right? Or it's just corporate greed. Or it's just somebody messed up and they made a mistake in their life, right? People are broken. Are you, are you like trying to tell me that the devil is actually real? Revelation says yes. It says yes. We've got to face the fact that there is an enemy, that he has a name, that he's intelligent, that he's present in our lives, and that his best attempts are to ruin us. For reference, in case you're wondering, a number of people have asked about things during the weeks. This book by Michael J. Gorman, Reading Revelation Responsibly, is a great place to start if you're interested in reading a bit deeper, maybe on the devil and all the rest of the stuff there. And another book that I thought was really helpful on that particular topic was John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. It has a whole section on the devil in part one. And I really recommend it if you want to maybe think about this as something that is real and present in our lives. Because it wasn't abstract for the writers of the New Testament, and particularly for John, who saw Satan as real as it gets. And so to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says the very first things, I know you live, and Satan lives there. And the way he is uh, and will affect you most is to lie. Is to lie. And so to you, make yourselves a people of truth. Truth is in sharp Focus. If you want one word, you don't remember anything else from today about what, about what Jesus said to the church in Pergamum. It's the truth needs to be in sharp focus. I know you live. The devil lives there. Make yourself a people of truth. And so how do we break that down, okay? How might we deliver that to us today? Well, what does the letter say? I think the letter really is talking about two things today. The first of those is tactics, and the second is intimacy. The first of them is tactics then. Let's read those first few verses then again, okay? This is what it says. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So it's Pergamum that we're in this week, right? And this is a place about, because I know, I know you've been loving the geography element of Revelation so far, right? So just geography bit, it's a, I mean, it's about 55 miles north of where we were last week in Smyrna. Smyrna's on the coast, it's beautiful. We're just in line, inland from that, right? And the major feature, a bit like somewhere like Durham or somewhere like that, Lincoln, if you've been there, is that uh, the major features of the city were on a hill, right? It rises from sea level to quite high, and on the, the, the top of that hill were its major buildings, and we'll get to those in a minute about what they might have been okay but geographically as you looked at it from afar it was quite an ominous place just because of its geography and there were kind of three important features about this particular city okay first it was the major city in the region for religious cults okay the imperial cult which we talked about last week which was the worship of the emperor as a god okay it was particularly fanatical here in this city okay secondly it was a university city and we all know around the UK, right, university cities have a different feel, don't they? 
Like Belfast is a university city. Nowadays, when you walk through Belfast city centre, the only people around are either builders or students, right? So it's a university city, and that changes the dynamics. So it was for Pergamum, right? It was a large university in the heart of it, and it came with a huge library, right? This was the second largest library, essentially, in the world at that time, after the one in Alexandria. And third, it was the leading kind of location for parchment, okay? The word of which parchment comes from the word for Pergamum. So it was a pretty impressive place, right? And it was pretty impressed with itself. Given its status and its significance, it was also a city given the rare power of capital punishment, right? The Romans didn't deal that out readily, okay? But uh, Pergamum had the power of capital punishment and it used it. The Roman symbol for capital punishment was the sword. And so as we've been saying all along, Jesus very often, whenever he gives kind of his introduction, part of the picture that he gives of himself speaks exactly to where they are and what's going on. So to a city for whom it was synonymous with the sword, how does Jesus introduce himself? Him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Except we know that the picture in Revelation 1, okay, where we get this full, you know, John has his vision of Jesus and it's a whole series of like dazzling and amazing things. When he has the picture of the double-edged sword, the sword is coming out of his mouth. In other words, this is a totally different kind of sword. The sword was his words. And this is Jesus speaking with words as sharp as any sword, speaking to a city that knew all about the sword of another kind. And as has been the trend, this is kingdom versus the empire stuff again. To all of the churches so far, this has been a feature, right? The kingdom of God, the empires of this world. He's been getting at it again and again, and he gets at it again right at the start of the letter to the church in Pergamum. And so Jesus speaks, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Okay, that's what Jesus says. And the reality is that the persecution that Jesus was kind of promising the church in Smyrna last week, it's already arrived here in Pergamum. It's already happening. And Antipas gets a mention, okay? He's the only one, he's the only individual in all of the letters who specifically gets a mention. And there's a reason for that because everyone knew about Antipas. He was said to have been a dentist and a physician and he was accused of spreading Christianity in his world. And in a city where worship to Caesar, right, was fanatical, therefore kind of trying to bring others into the worship of Jesus was very much seen as a question of disloyalty, right? And so he was executed, but he didn't just get any execution. Antipas was executed by what is known in, in kind of our terms now as the brazen bull. And the brazen bull was exactly as it sounds. It was a huge bull that was made of bronze or copper. He would have been sealed inside. And that bull was then wheeled above a fire. And the fire was lit. And he essentially cooked to death inside a bull. In fact, it was even more perverse than that because the Romans who put an awful lot of time into thinking about how they might do these sorts of things, they went as f so far as to have special valves in the nose of the bull so that as he screamed as he died, what they heard was like the sound of a bull out of sort of trumpets that were in its nose. It was horrifying. If you're like me, your heart is beating a little bit faster right now just at the thought of what that would have meant for a human being. It happened in public. 
for all the world to see. And so everybody knew about Antipas. And twice in one verse, right, Jesus says, Satan lives here. In other words, he was at work in all of this. The first attempt to destroy the church in Pergamum was to stamp it out, right? It was persecute them. It was kill them. It was stamp it out. And yet, it's exactly what Jesus commends them for, isn't it? It's the first thing he says, like, you remained faithful. You held on. You didn't give up. You didn't give in. Even though you saw this and you knew that this is the sort of thing that could happen to you, you didn't give up. And so the church lived on, even through that. And yet, if we're honest, that's a repeat picture of the church throughout church history, isn't it? In fact, it's how the church grew in the first place. You remember, uh, as we did our Acts series earlier on in the year, that in Acts 7, it's all about Stephen, right? His speech and then how Stephen is stoned to death publicly. The same idea, this church, stamp it out. And then in Acts 8, what happens next? The church scatters. The vehicle by which they try to stamp them out is the thing that ends up scattering the church to all throughout the known world at that time. And it becomes the vehicle, the way by which the whole world hears about Jesus. And it's the same around the world, isn't it? Throughout church history, when the church is persecuted, somehow it seems to multiply every single time, right? It's like that scene in Harry Potter. I'm going well niche now, right? Like that scene in Harry Potter when they're trying to find the Horcruxes and they go to the vault of Bellatrix Lestrange, right? Do you know that bit? And everything they hit, it multiplies, doesn't it? Like everything they touch, suddenly one becomes two and more and more and more and more. And it's like this snowball effect. That is a really niche reference, isn't it? But like that's what happens when the church is persecuted around the world. It multiplies. It multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And that's what happened here. The first tactic is to try and persecute the church out of Pergamum. But it doesn't work. It never works. So then there's this change of tactics, right? And this is what it says in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Okay, so there's a backstory to this, okay? And the first thing is, I need to be really careful not to sort of drift into a Northern Irish swear term when I say the word Balak all the time, okay? I have to be really careful with this one, okay? But it's all in the book of Numbers, okay? Numbers chapters 22 to 25 is where this appears. If you want to read it at another point, you can kind of read it in full, right? right? Because there's lots going on here. But the story is that King Balak of Moab, right? He hired the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel, right? That was his primary job. He promised them all sorts of things if he would do it. And so he tries several times to curse the people of Israel. He gets up on top of a mountain and there's like a whole thing about it. I think he tries three times in those chapters, right? So he gets on top of a mountain and his whole idea was he was going to speak these curses over them. And every time he gets up to open his mouth to curse them, blessing comes out. So he's trying his best to curse them and blessing just rolls from his tongue. Like he can't help it. And every time he goes back and, and King Balak is raging at him and he's like, what are you doing? You're going to ruin us. I've, I've kind of commissioned you to ruin them and all you do is bless them. And so this kind of goes on and it happens several times. And then eventually, right, he, he, he comes back to him. He said, oh, well, I've got another idea. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to send the women of Midian into the camp. And the women are going to seduce the Israelites. 
because they had things like food-related kind of idol kind of practices. And then the other thing they had was like, um, they essentially had sacred prostitution, right? It was a big part of what they did. So we're going to send them in. We're going to seduce them. And then the Lord is, their Lord is going to judge them himself. And so that's what they did. And that's what happened. It worked. It worked. Of course it worked. It still works today. Because this was about tactics. And the change of tactics was towards seduction. If I can't persecute the church out of Pergamum, I'm going to seduce them out of Pergamum. If Satan couldn't persecute the church out of Pergamum, he'd seduce the church away from Jesus and more and more and more into the arms of the world. And the gateway drugs, okay, to use a term, okay, were food and sex. Those were the gateways. Those were the things that got them, right? Those were the way in. That's the way to tempt them away from the way of Jesus and into the way of the world. It was food and sex. We'll get onto those a bit later on, right? And we know it worked because as Jesus is speaking to them here, he's calling them to turn it around. But the thing is, those still are the things that work, aren't they? They still are the sorts of things that work in our lives. For us, the church here in Belfast in 2022, right? The biggest enemy of the work of Jesus in our lives is most likely not persecution. It's most likely not very hard things. The greatest enemy in all of our lives, the most effective work of the enemy in our lives is the good thing. It's not the worst thing, it's the good thing. It's the good is the enemy of best thing. It's the good things. It's trainers and houses with the right postcodes. It's brunch. It's just settling. It's comfort and wealth and convenience and status and self. It's everything that distracts and diverts the attention of your eyes, your ears, your wallets, and eventually your hearts from Jesus and his work in your life. If the church, if Satan can't persecute Jesus out of your life, then he'll seduce him out of your life. It's about tactics. It's about tactics. And it's the drift of good things that draws us out of the deep things with Jesus. And the reality for the church in Pergamum was that that many of them, they wouldn't renounce Jesus, but they just didn't want to stand out. They wouldn't renounce him, but they just didn't want to stand out. Could they tolerate and accommodate so much of what everyone else did, the practices that were all around them at that time and the rhythms and the priorities of the rest of the people in Pergamum? Could they tolerate and accommodate them enough? Was there a way to be part of their way of life just enough to not get noticed but still be with Jesus? Was there a way to do that? Like, can I be enough of all of that, that that they won't notice me and they won't pick on me and they won't persecute me? Can I be enough of that, but still be enough of Jesus? Is there a way for us to do that too? Bare minimum Christianity. Bare minimum faith. To live just on the line, right? To live on the bare minimum and accommodate just enough of the way of the world and still be in for the way of Jesus. Is there a way to do that? And hopefully a way that no one will notice. A work colleague won't ask. Won't pick on me. 
a family member or a friend will ask me awkward questions about my faith and what I think about X, Y, and Z, right? Is there a way to do just enough, just enough to get by, but just enough so I don't get noticed? Just enough Christianity. Jesus says no. No, there's not. There is no way to accommodate all of that stuff and do just enough for me. This is a warning, and we need to hear it today. I realize this is probably not the uplifting start to the sermon that you came here for on a Sunday morning, right? But this is a warning from Jesus' mouth to the words of John to a church in Pergamum that lands in us today that the tactics of the enemy in our lives are most likely going to be the ones that cause us to drift and shift through the seduction that is in our world and in our lives, away from his work in our lives. What about you and I? How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? Because it's phones and things that we watch, and things that we buy, stuff that has our heart, stuff that grabs our gaze. Targeted adverts are pretty amazing at it, to be honest. When we look at people's homes on Instagram and something happens in our heart, right? It's when we look at people's lives and something happens in our heart. It's that. That's what starts to drift. That's what seduction looks like in our lives. This is about tactics, first of all. But secondly, this is about intimacy. This is about intimacy. This is what it says as we read on in verses 16 and 17. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who's victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to the one who receives it. I always remember... um, kind of a section of an interview uh, that I remember watching on the BBC whenever I was, I was small. And it was, it was the response of an SAS soldier who was being interviewed by the BBC during the Iraq war. And there was this moment during the interview where uh, they asked this soldier, who's like, you know, kind of gruff and big and strong and apex kind of alpha male type person, right? And they ask him as part of the interview, okay, what is the nature of your relationship with your fellow commandos, right? And you're kind of expecting, you know, at this point, you're going to get some sort of like, you know, macho male, lads, lads, lads type response that comes out of his mouth, right? But that's not what happens. I remember it so clearly because of what he says next. He turns around to the interviewer and he uses only one word. And he says, intimate. Intimate. It's intimate because they stood so closely together day after day after day in the firing line and all of the things that they did. It's intimate because so entwined in each other's fate, so knowing of where they were each at and each of them known. The relationship was intimate in the most unlikely of places. It was intimate. And that is the nature of the relationship or the invitation to the church in Pergamum from Jesus himself. The nature of the repair, right, that he wants to do to that church between him and them. The nature of the repair, it's, it's going to be intimate. 
And it needs to be okay because the contest in Pergamum was a whole way of life and a way to see the world, okay? The commentator Michael Wilcock puts it like this. The enormous Pergamene library, the famous healing ministry of the priests of Asculapius, and crowning the city's Acropolis, the Greco-Asiatic altar of Zeus the Savior. All this paraphernalia of an alternative society catering for mind, body, and spirit. Here's the thing. The invitation in Pergamum was into a whole way of life. It was a whole way of life. And of course, people could be seduced into a whole way of life. This was a contest, right? The contest for what was the true picture of their world, their lives, and its contents. And it's the same contest today, isn't it? The contest in our lives is for a whole way of life, isn't it? A whole way to see the world, a whole way to see ourselves, a whole way to see our sin and our stuff and our direction and our future. It's about a whole way of life. John Mark Comer paraphrases the word truth, okay, which we hear so often and we use so often. He paraphrases it like this. Truth is what we can rely on as real. The chair I'm sitting on is real. The air I'm breathing is real. Jesus is real. I love that. I love that. Because as we said at the start, what's at stake in Pergamum is truth, right? It's truth. He wants them to be a people of truth. And that's what's contested. That's what all this stuff about food and sex and all that was about in verse 14, okay? And the backstory of that, okay, because there's a backstory to everything in Revelation, is that Paul had addressed it a bit earlier on in the Bible, okay? He'd addressed the followers of Jesus specifically could eat meat that had been used in kind of ritual idolatry, okay? So things that had been sacrificed and all of that sort of stuff to idol temples and all that. And if they could get involved in sex rituals uh, that were kind of going on in the world at that time. And he wrote about it in two letters, okay? He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians, and then he wrote about it in Romans as well well. And basically, he gives the following advice, okay? The first is that there's to be absolutely no compromise with pagan temples and cult, right? So that's the sex festivals out, okay? I'm sure they were gutted to hear that, right? But there's absolutely no compromise, none on those things. But that there was some flexibility with the food questions, right? That's that passage in Romans that very often people talk about when it comes to alcohol. It's that stuff about, you know, if it causes your brother to stumble and all of that, okay? So if eating the food will cause another to stumble, don't eat it. But if it doesn't cause you to stumble, don't worry about it, basically, is what he says. There's some flexibility on how you are to maybe deal with some of these questions. Because it was about what the believer had in his heart. Here's the problem, though. The church had taken the flexibility and had run with it. It had taken the flexibility and it had just adopted it all. So often in life, we find that, isn't it? Like so often when you're given a little, you take a lot. And they're given a bit of flexibility, but they just adopt it all. And what was at stake here, right, was not just food or sex, okay? Because that's what it looks like on the outset, but it's not. What's at stake here is so much more than that. Because really it was a contest over the truth or reality about food and sex and so much more, okay? And their commitment to Jesus' vision of life and reality. You see, what we see as truth or true in our lives, it's a big core piece of how we navigate the world, isn't it? 
Like what we believe to be true is a big piece of how we navigate our way through this life. And so it was for the church in Pergamum. You see, the lie at the time was that there was nothing going on behind the scenes with these things, right? All, they, all that there was was just all that they could see, right? So food was just food. Doesn't matter what's happened with the food. It's, it's just food. It's just fuel. Idols, well, they're just pieces of wood. And I, you know, I go and pay my two cents and... And I go on with the rest of my life. It's no, it's no big deal. And sex, sex is just the body. There's no big deal about any of these things. Except it's not, is it? It's not. Jesus says there's more going on with food and idols and sex than just all we can see and all we can touch and all we can know. Jesus says there's more going on. I don't know if you've ever actually read the lyrics to one of the world's most epic, anthemic songs, right? We're talking Sia Chandelier here, right? I'm not even going to try. I know usually I give you a fair go at like a rendition of said song, but like you can't, right? The vocal is too much. It's the most extra vocal ever, right? I know that all of you have had a good go at belting it out in the car at some stage though, right? Uh, and it's an incredible song, right? I mean, you can't make out any of the words anyway. I said you know the lyrics. Nobody knows the lyrics. I don't even know if she knows the lyrics. But anyway, the only thing we can make about it is, ah! And that's it, okay? But if you've ever read the lyrics, verse two says this, but I'm holding on for dear life I won't look down, won't open my eyes, keep my glass full until the morning light. Because I'm just holding on for tonight. Help me, I'm holding on for dear life. Won't look down, won't open my eyes, keep my glass full until morning light. Because I'm just holding on for tonight, on for tonight. Sun is up, I'm a mess. Gotta get out now, gotta run from this. Here comes the shame, here comes the shame. And then it's one, two, three, one, two, three, drink, one, two, three, drink. Here comes the shame. Here comes the shame. It's haunting, right? You're not belting it out so loudly now next time you're in the car, right? But it's haunting, isn't it? And the reason it's haunting is because it so puts its finger on a whole way of the world that so many people, some of us included, live in. It puts its finger on a whole way of the world where it's nothing. It's just like, I'm just out on a Friday night. What's the big deal, right? Except the shame. And here comes the shame. And here comes the shame after you've lived that way. Because we don't believe very often that there's more going on than what we can see with our eyes and touch and all of that sort of stuff, right? We don't believe it enough to live in line with Jesus' version of life, right? We believe that the bank balance is a greater statement of truth than what Jesus says about resources, right? We believe what the body wants is a greater statement of truth than what Jesus says about what might be the right things, we believe very often about what our heads or other people say about us and our body image and our sense of self than what Jesus has to say about us, don't we? This is a contest over truth. And the thing is that that kind of belief about life just being all we can see, right, that kind of runs out of steam when it crashes up against the reality about how you feel the next day. Until we find out that we still eat our feelings when we find out that the worship we give social media feeds takes way more than just our likes. When we find out that sex attaches us more than just physically to somebody else. And then here comes the shame. 
Here comes the shame. Here comes the shame. And then we get to verse 16. And we get to one of the Bible's most beautiful words. And unfortunately, I think so much in our culture and for me growing up in the world of kind of uh, corn market preachers and all of that sort of stuff, right? This word very often we don't see it as beautiful, but it's one of the Bible's most beautiful words. And it's the word repent. It's the word repent. And that word is beautiful, right? That word means to turn around, to turn it around, to change your mind. And it's such a beautiful word because of what it means. Because it means that we don't have the right to sit in judgment of ourselves. It means that, it, that we don't have to live in the shame that comes inevitably when we live outside of life choices that we know aren't right for us and for our lives. It means that there's a chance. It means that there's a way to life. And the nature of that is intimate. It's intimate. So we get this whole bit of text about a white stone, right? And, and what's that about, okay, is the next question. Well, there's a number of interpretations, okay? It could be a, a, a reference to how the buildings in Pergamum, they were built out of a specific kind of black stone that was local to the region. And so whenever they wanted signage above the door for something, it was written on a white stone because it would stand out against the black of the stone of the structure, right? It could be that. Or it could be a subverting image of something called the Tesseron, which was an invite that you received if you were kind of well-to-do in the world at that time to a sacred feast, a kind of idolatry feast that took place. Your invite came on a white stone. Or it could be high. a white stone in their culture represented a favorable vote or a ruling in court. If you got acquitted in court, you got a white stone. It could be any of those things. The truth is, we don't really know. And what about this stuff about a new name as well? Well, again, it could be a couple of things, right? It could be that Jesus will give to each of us who choose to follow him a new name. An actual, like, your new name is this. It could be that. Or it could be that to each of us will be given the new name of Jesus the Messiah as opposed to the old names of the old things that we give our lives to. We don't know necessarily what it was. But here's what we do know. What we do know is that for all the symbolism and the mystery, the passage tells us that the only person who will know the name is you. The only person who gets to know the name written on that stone, whatever that stone is, is you. It's the individual. It's written to you. It's written to only you. Why? Because Jesus wants an intimate relationship with you. It's with you. Intimacy is really to know and to be known by another. That's really what we say when we use that term, which is perhaps the most Christian term in the world, right? But when we say intimacy, what we mean is to know and be known by another. Jesus says there's going to be a white stone. And you're the only one that's going to know the name on that white stone. Why? Because I want an intimate relationship with you. It doesn't matter what's on somebody else's stone. It doesn't matter the nature of my relationship with them. All that matters is the relationship with you. I want to know you. And I want you to know me. It's the intimate nature of relationship, right? It's the phone voice that somebody has for their new girlfriend We're in, when they're in the book in love phase, right? And you hear them, hi, sweetie. Uh, it's that, right? 
It's the nicknames that you have for the people in your life that you love, that only you use. For me, in my life, I don't know why, but I just always knew Joy as lovely. I just always called her lovely. I still do. I'm actually a bit embarrassed saying it today, but I still do. It just, it just came out early in our relationship, and I've always called her that. I've always called my daughter Elle Birdie. I don't know why. I just did. I still do. I hope that I always will. That's it, right? Because those are the names reserved only for them. Nobody else has them, and nobody else really knows them. And the relationship Jesus wants with you is just like that. It's that sort of relationship. It's the in relationship. It's the sense of like Jesus has something with you that's just for you. And it's not for somebody else. Jesus has his own relationship with them. And he loves them just the same as he loves you. But he wants this relationship with you. And it's going to be intimate. That's how he wants you to be known and to know. We are made the offer of intimate relationship with Jesus, the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. But the road to intimacy, it starts with repentance. It starts with turning around, right? The word metanoia, compound word, means change mind, right? It literally means, or after mind is what it means, but change mind, change your mind, turn it around. Life doesn't have to be lived in the cycle of here comes the shame. Here comes the shame. Here comes the shame. The offer is the truest, deepest relationship with the living God. And with that offer, right, of intimacy with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life comes with it, right? It comes with it, the offer and the challenge to see the world the way he does, to see myself the way he does, to see my sin the way he does, to see my circumstances the way he does, to see my future the way he does, to stand on the truth, the true picture of our lives and it all, everything out there that has and will be, to turn away from the lie that all we have is all that we see and to push at the falseness of the intimacy so much of the world offers us and experience intimacy with Jesus. I shared this on, on uh, Wednesday night at worship and prayer, but um, it just rocked me in the last week when I read it again. And this is what Eugene Peterson has to write about prayer. He says this, prayer is a refusal to live as an outsider to my God and my own soul. And here's the thing today as we come into land. How often do we live as an outsider to our God and to our own soul? How often do we live outside of the intimacy that is on offer to us? How often do we live with the reality of our lives, right? How we really feel, right? Behind the facade, behind the, you know, the exterior that we put up and the kind of standard Northern Irish response when someone asks you how you're doing, you say, yeah, mate, I'm good. How are you? Right, as quickly as possible, whistling by any possibility of getting into how we really feel. How often do we do that with ourselves? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And live in shame and pain and doubt and all of the things that we do. Hide. Live as an outsider even to our own feelings. Strangers to ourselves and strangers to our own souls. Outsiders to our God. Jesus says, Beware the tactics of the enemy. 
where he can't persecute you out of your faith in Jesus, where he can't make it so hard that you don't want to have a relationship with Jesus. He'd seduce you out of your relationship with Jesus. And it won't be the worst things. It'll be the good things. It'll be the things that you clamor to like. It'll be screen time. It'll be bank balances. It'll be good stuff. He'll try to seduce you. But second, he says that incredible word, repent. There is a way to turn it around. There is a way to life. There is a way to deal with the here comes the shame aspect to our lives. That way is repentance. And repentance is the road to intimacy, to know you and have you know him and no longer live as an outsider to your own soul and to your relationship with him.